Well, good morning, church family. He is worthy of it all. Amen. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope you do. I'd like you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find it, I'd like to draw your attention to the 12th chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. And I have the high honor of preaching to you from verse 21 down through verse 31. It is good to be back. Thank you for your prayers and encouragement as Laurel and I and about 45 or 50 of you were in the Holy Lands last week. It was a special trip. It's one I plan to do annually for the next foreseeable future. I hope and pray that if the Lord allows, you will join me some year. I love the opportunity to see people experience those monumental places in the legacy and the history of our faith. But I must admit, when it came Sunday, my fault was on you. And I love receiving texts like the one I received from Ben Mandrell, the president of Lifeway, who preached here last Sunday. I know you enjoyed him. I know he was an encouragement. I tuned in via the gift of technology and took attendance. I zoomed out to see if you were here. Uh, but in all honesty, uh, I got a text from him just as he finished the morning of ministry. And he said, my goodness, brother. He said, I'm in churches all over the nation. You have a very special group of people. They are hungry for the word and they know how to worship. And of course, I texted him back how gracious that is for him to share that with me, how thankful I am for you. And I know how special you are. And I also made sure he knew he cannot have you. You are mine. And I am grateful to be back with you this morning. I'm also grateful to continue this sermon series called Church Matters. I'm thankful for those of you who always worship here with us at the 11 o'clock hour and the 37% of you that normally are at 9, but you didn't spring forward, and we're glad to have you as well in this second service. Church matters, and because of that, church matters matter. It matters to the Lord how we handle the matters that arise within our faith family, and if it matters to Him, it should matter to us. As we have walked through the book of 1 Corinthians, verse by verse, over the last year and a half, we have found ourselves in places where Paul has dealt with deep theology. There are places where Paul has dealt with serious sin. And we came a few weeks ago to chapters 11 and chapter 12 where Paul begins to address issues in the church that needed to be addressed. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. I did not visit Corinth last week. It is not in the Holy Lands. It is in, of course, the Mediterranean, north of the Holy Lands. But I did visit a city, Caesarea Philippi, where Paul would have stood and loaded onto a ship when he was put on trial in Rome. And standing there within a few feet of where the Apostle Paul had stood on his way to Rome, I was reminded of his love for Corinth, because it was in those areas often he would write back to the churches that he had loved and planted and ministered to. And while he loved Corinth, he's burdened over some things happening in Corinth. It matters that the church function correctly. And it's not okay to relegate that to just the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the small group leaders, the board of trustees, whatever ecclesiology or structure that you're used to hearing in and around church, while it's very important for men and women in leadership to understand how the church should function, it's more important for the average member, for the Sunday morning participant, 
for the person out in the audience being led to know that God not only cares about his church functioning correctly, he cares that you care and he wants you to fulfill your role to take your part in being the body of Christ. In fact, verses 21 down to verse 31, the conclusion of this chapter, are really part two of a two-part message I began two weeks ago where Paul introduces and uses the metaphor of the human body to describe the church. Now, we have all at some point been infatuated with what it would be like to have a superhuman body. I don't know about you, but I have come to the conclusion with much discernment, I don't have a perfect body. There has always been this infatuation with what would it be like to have a body that could literally do anything. Anybody here grow up in the 70s? I got there late, born in 77. I would consider myself a child of the 80s. But some of you grew up in the 70s. Do you remember the $6 million man? Lee Majors. Now, this show, the premise of the show was that he was badly injured, almost to the point of death, as a NASA pilot, and they rebuilt him. In fact, when the show came on, it would say, well, put him back together, and they put all these bionic powers in him, and of course, the show was him using this incredible ability to run fast and to see and to hear and superhuman strength. It was so popular that ladies, not to leave you out, the bionic woman was a spinoff of the show. And if you were not a child of the 70s, don't worry. The 80s came and we got RoboCop. You remember RoboCop? This guy all but died. And they put him together as a human robo robot. And he was something to deal with in crime. In fact, there are certain cities in our nation today that could use a few RoboCops. Clean them up. You go, well, that's uh, old school. Is it really? Is not the new RoboCop Iron Man? It is the same thing. A human being without any special powers, yet they step into a suit and they can fly and jump and run and do all kinds of things. In fact, of all of the figures, uh, Iron Man doesn't have any superhuman power. He's kind of a smart aleck gazillionaire, but when he puts on this suit, he can do anything that needs to be done. And of course, it proves what pop culture often proves, there's this desire within us to wonder what would it be like if we could build the perfect body. Church, Christ has built the perfect body. And he does it with imperfect, redeemed sinners. In fact, the Bible celebrates the bride of Christ. The Bible tells us that the bride of Christ has not only been fully redeemed, but given everything she needs to continue the ministry of the gospel. And why does this matter? It matters because of the theology of the body of Christ we touched on two weeks ago. Remember, this is important. I was just a few days ago where Jesus was born, stood within a few feet of the site that has been historically proven to be very close to the nativity. 
I also journeyed in the places that Jesus taught. I sat on a hillside with our members and taught the Bible where Jesus had the Sermon on the Mount. I stood where Golgotha was. I visited the garden tomb. And the one thing I found through this pilgrimage that I enjoy pointing out every year is that the Lord is not to be found anywhere. The tomb is empty, the cross has been completed, the nativity is a thing of his past, and we know why. The Lord is in heaven today. He has been in heaven since his ascension. His ascension happened after his resurrection. So he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he ascended on high. So the literal hands and feet of Christ are not and have not been on this earth for two millennia. So we then are the body of Christ. This is why we're called the body of Christ. We house the spirit of the Lord. Not in our cathedrals or our auditoriums, not in stained glass windows or hymnals, liturgy, doctrinal statements, websites, ministries, budgets, buildings. No, 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 no. The spirit of the living God lives in the living men and women who have been made alive in Christ and are born again. And therefore, we need to understand how to be his body. This passage really begins to deal with this in the most simplistic yet powerful terms. Read with me silently as I read aloud, beginning in verse 21. You'll notice the continuation. In fact, I'll jump up to verse 17 even though we dealt with that two weeks ago. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We concluded our sermon two weeks ago with that. Now here we go, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, verse 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, are more which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division, verse 25, in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And here comes the central point of the passage, verse 27. Now you, he's speaking to me and you, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Then he asks some rhetorical questions in verses 29 and 30. The answer, of course, is no. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Of course, he's wanting you to say no. Not everybody has the same gift or the same assignment but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And that is a bridge to chapter 13, which will begin next week, a beautiful celebration of love. 
Verse 27 is really the linchpin of this passage because it communicates both corporate identity. You are the body of Christ. But it also communicates individual connectedness. And we belong to one another. And if you're positioning verse 27 in the sermon, it sets in the center of the passage. And on top and below it are really two truths about being the body. More specifically, there are also two reactions. So truth and then how I should react to the truth. This is the nature of Christian preaching. Christian preaching is presenting truth, but not that you just be smarter. It's presenting truth so that you and I can take from that truth our acts of obedience. We hear the truth, we see the truth, we then believe the truth, and we are to leave and act on the truth. In just a few minutes when I conclude the sermon, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you now, and then I'll tell you again in just a few minutes. I want you to love the Lord, I want you to love his body, and I want you to do your part. And to do that, you have to really see your place in a bigger redemptive story. So let me give you these two truths. Truth number one, God designs the arrangement and the affection of his body. One of the themes in chapter 12 is that God's the one who does this. I think this is interesting. How does the Bible even begin? The Bible begins with creation. And as far as you and I are concerned, it really gets interesting when he decides to make us. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Ladies, you know a little bit later in that same passage, I'm not going to show it to you. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. He took flesh from Adam during Adam's deep, miraculous sleep, and he formed woman. And he gave them to one another. And Genesis chapter 1 really solves all the issues the world is debating. Who made us? God. What did he make us for? His glory. How did he make us? As male and female. Two genders. As male and female. And how did he design us to, make, to relate to one another in lifelong relationships? And a man shall leave his mother and father and shall receive his bride, his wife, and cleave only to him. This is the foundation of the world. But before the church was created, before any government was ever put in place, God formed that human society will be based off of the masculinity of men, the femininity of woman, the genders being one male, two female, together in holy matrimony. And so this is how God starts humanity. But have you ever noticed the parallel between how he made the body of Christ? How did he make our bodies? Well, originally, he formed them and breathed into them. The Hebrew word for breath is ruach. It's an interesting pronunciation. The Greek word for breath is also the Greek word for spirit. It's pronounced pneuma. Guys, those of you that work in fabrication shops or mechanics, you know what we use pneumatics for is pressurized air. That's what pneumatics are. An air compressor has a tank. The compressor engine runs like any other combustible engine, and basically it pushes air into a tank and pressurizes it. And with that pressurized air, you can run mechanisms, you can air up a tire, you can move mountains with the pressure of air, pneumatology. God gave us life through his breath. 
he breathed into Adam. How does he give the church life? When was the church born? The church was born on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was that day following the resurrection and ascension where Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait on me. And on the day of Pentecost, a holiday in the Jewish calendar, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the pneuma, breathed on the body of Christ, and the body was given life. And so we see that Genesis required the breath of God, and for the church of Jesus, it requires the breath of God. And so he creates This is what he does. We see it in verse 11. We see it in verse 18. We see it in verse 24. All those verses, if you were to look, says God did it. God did it. God did it. God did it. Why does this matter? Because churches tear themselves apart when we begin to try or attempt to take credit for the building of the body of Christ, for arranging people as as the way we see them, for quantifying and qualifying people's spirituality based on the gifts we think they have. All of this is a work of God. What does this mean for your life? I'll tell you what it means. You definitely can't look at a passage like this and not see yourself in it. If you don't think there's a place for you in the body of Christ to be used in a strategic and powerful way, then what you have is not only a low view of yourself, it's a low view of your God. God is the one who does what he does, when he does it, how he does it, for his glory. And Paul uses that good old simplistic human body as an analogy. Look in verse 21, I'll show you what I mean. That I cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And then he gives us three categories. Look at the three categories, beginning in verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Now, most commentators believe he's talking about the little parts, your fingers and your eyes. You know, if you hold up just one finger, it doesn't really have a lot of strength, right? You ever thumb wrestled with anybody? I can't do it without sticking my tongue out. I don't know why, all right? I don't have a whole lot of strength in my one finger, all right? But man. It'd be really hard to lose one or ten of these. Where's the strength in your body? Well, I don't, I don't want to be too graphic, but the biggest muscles you have, well, you're sitting on them. Your, your legs and your backside represent the largest muscles in the human body. These are the muscles, muscles that are in charge of your locomotion. They carry you where you're going. You use those muscles to pick up and comfort your children. For those of you who work uh, outside or you work with your back, We say you work with your back because you literally use those muscles. Whether you're on an assembly line or slinging tires at Michelin or you're delivering, you use those muscles. And so you need those large muscles. But let me tell you something. Your backside can't tap an email. I've seen a few emails that look like you were thinking with your backside, but your backside (laughs) can't type an email. You need the finer, smaller, weaker parts of your body to do these incredibly important things. In the big scheme of things, your eyeball is relatively small compared to the rest of you. Yet losing an eye, or heaven forbid, losing both eyes directly impacts your quality of life. This is the point he's saying. Then he uses a second category. Look at verse 22. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. you got to have them. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. What's he talking about there? Most people believe he's talking about the internal parts of our body. So, so for example, you can evaluate many things visually. If you cut your arm, you can see it. If you have a break, if your skin breaks out, you can see it. But you have to go see a specialist to find out the condition of your heart, the condition of your liver. To take a look at your lungs, it requires modern technology. And therefore, we really care about that. You twist your ankle, I'm not even sure you ask your small group to pray. You twisted your ankle. Not that they wouldn't, but the world's not going to come to an end because you twisted your ankle. But if all of a sudden your cardiovascular system is not functioning correctly, you've got everybody in your life praying for you because even though that's not an organ we see, it is an organ we honor greatly because of the importance of it. And then he says a third category. He says the unpresentable organs. Look what he says in verse 23. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts we treat with greater modesty. I don't have to tell you what those parts are. When we talk to children about that, we say, these are your private parts. You can absolutely be in your birthday suit when you are bathing or showering. But you teach children that they are to dress themselves to go out. You teach children that those parts of their body are to be taken care of and cared for, but they're not to be touched by people that we don't know or people who would do harm for us. We, of course, as we get older and we develop sexually, our Christian sexual ethic is that your body, especially your genitalia, are designed for your spouse. And therefore, we encourage people to dress with decency and modesty in public. We do not encourage as Christians the flaunting of nudity. doesn't mean that there's anything sinful about the body. It means because of God's design for the body, there are certain parts of the body that require modesty. And this is Paul's great point. It proves how important they are that we cover them. And what is he doing? Well, he's not talking about your muscles. He's not talking about your liver. He's not talking about your private parts. He's using the metaphor for the body of Christ. He's saying, and that's the same with you. Some of you are behind the scenes. You're never seen. Some of you think, I don't even know that I'm a presentable part of the body of Christ. Others of you are like, I don't even know that I belong. He's saying, just like every human body, you have been given your place. Which is why he goes on to write these words as soon as he finishes, beginning in verse 25. He says, or verse, the second part of verse 25, yeah. That there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. And then he uses a common sense. Look at this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's go from the body to the body. Anybody here noticed the pollen in the last 10 days? I left for Israel 11 days ago. When I got back, you people are yellow. Everything's yellow. The cars are yellow. I was walking through the woods yesterday on a piece of property, and every time I stepped, yellow powder came over my boots. In fact, while I know it was a little rainy and dreary this morning, I was glad to knock some of the pollen down. I felt great in Jerusalem. I got here 30 minutes. I, I'm struggling, right? I don't care how healthy your feet, your knees, your hips are. 
if you have a splitting sinus headache, the rest of your body's affected. You just feel lousy. People look at you and they're like, gosh, you look terrible. You know, your real friends, they say, you look terrible today. Same thing with a particular organ. If you've ever dealt with chronic knee pain or hip pain or back pain, any of you know, all joking aside, any of you know chronic pain, you know that if you are hurting physically in one place on your body, it can tear you down emotionally and you can even fight spiritual battles because you're tired of being in pain. I know members of our church, it takes everything they have to physically get up and come to church on Sundays because of the physical pain that they are dealing with. Paul says, when one part of the body hurts, the rest of it is affected. But the truth also is in the contrast. If one part of your body experiences healing, the rest of it is relieved. It feels so good to finally get that sinus headache behind you. If you had to have that knee replaced, it feels so good to get through it, get through the surgery, get through the physical therapy, and finally start feeling better and leave the pain behind. It affects all of who you are. And Paul says this is a picture of the church because it leads to that reaction. If the truth is... God has designed the arrangement and the affection of the church, then we ought to accept our place and appreciate one another. This is why the passage says it this way, beginning in chapter 12, verse 26. If one member suffer, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I was reminded of what he says to the Roman believers in Romans 12. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. What's the enemy of harmony? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The enemy of unity is pride and arrogance in our lives. Let me show you how this works in the church. In the same hour, not the same day, not the same week, not the same month. In the same hour, I have experienced weeping with people who are weeping, turned around, and 15 minutes later bump into someone who has had a great answer to prayer and rejoice because they're rejoicing. You probably have experienced that. If you haven't, you will if you're serious about living out this sermon. And let me tell you what will rob you from weeping with somebody who's weeping or rejoicing with somebody who's rejoicing. Walk into the building thinking about yourself. When I make it about me, others people's, other people's pain doesn't register at the level that it should. When I make it about me, instead of rejoicing when someone has experienced a great movement of God, I get resentment that it didn't happen in my life. And this is the point Paul's making. Paul's saying, my view of the body directly affects how I can be a part of the body. God has arranged it. I told you last, two weeks ago, that there are two enemies to the movement of the body. What stops the church from being the church? One is the attitude of people who feel unworthy. I'm useless. That's the issue of faith. God did not save you to set you. He saved you that you would serve him. The second is I'm useful without the body. 
I'm good with Jesus, Pastor. I don't need the church. I don't want to get bogged down with commitments or join a small group or be put in a situation. I don't know. No, no, no. I'm good on my own. Those people are always hiding behind the lie that you can live this life for Christ and not have accountability and fellowship with the body of Christ. An analogy that many pastors have used in many situations to illustrate this is the fact that this is the bride of Christ. And if it is the bride of Christ, he is the head and we are the body. Can you imagine saying to any woman you care about, I really like your face, I don't care anything for your body. That would not go very well. It is a total package. And what you do is you disqualify yourself or I disqualify myself if I begin to think, one, I'm not worthy to be used, or two, I'm too big to be bogged down by a commitment to a church family. When we overcome these, we then become the body, which leads to that second truth. It's the last one I'll close with. God designates the appointments and the abilities of his body. So truth number one, God has arranged the body. He's built it the way it is. Your place in the church is determined by God, your gifts and your abilities. And then God designates those he wants in leadership. He calls them out. And he gives gifts according to his will to each of us to serve the mission. Right after verse 27, Paul begins to talk directly to the church. Verse 27 is Paul basically saying, you know all this language about fingers and eyes and presentable and unpresentable? It's about the church. That's why he says in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then he fleshes out some offices and some gifts. Look, I'll teach you a little bit about them. And God is appointed in the church first apostles, notice the sequence, second prophets, third teachers, then he switches from offices to gifts. He says, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then verse 29 and verse 30, he's trying to prove the point. God did all this for his glory, but stop worrying about what gift you have or what office you're not called to because not everybody's the same. I told you two weeks ago, I'll remind you again, if you walk into a religious organization where the charismatic leader dem demands everybody to be exactly the same, you've just joined a cult. The, the, the church is a celebration of who you are individually, because God made you. It's a celebration of your passions, your weaknesses, your testimony, your strengths. And then it is the harmony that comes when he takes all of us from our different backgrounds, our different walks, our different insecurities, our, our different victories, and he puts us together and he builds this local body of believers, in our specific case, known as Church at the Mill, and he gives us every leader and every gift, every appointment and every ability we need. Now, when we begin to unpack the gifts, we see several lists in the New Testament. Remember this? I showed, you, I showed you this also. Romans 12 has a list. There's several lists, two lists in 1 Corinthians 12. This is both of those put together. Ephesians 4 has a list. 1 Peter 4 has a list. And I shared and continue to share that those are not exhausted. In other words, that's not every spiritual gift that's there. But we do begin to see a pattern. One of the patterns is that the apostles would list offices that people served in and gifts that individual church members have. Our passage today has eight. 
there are eight here in this verse, and the first three are offices, and the second five are gifts. The first is the apostles. What is an apostle? An apostle were the early church fathers who were qualified to be an apostle because they had literally seen the risen Lord. In fact, we see this all throughout Scripture. In Ephesians 2, 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So these were foundational offices that needed to exist early. Ephesians 4, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. The shepherds and teachers is one word in the original language, shepherd, teacher. That's the role that I play here. I am not an apostle. While I hope to preach prophetically and want to have a gift of discernment to speak over you, I don't first and foremost call myself a prophet. I'm a pastor, teacher of a local body of believers. Apostles were unique in that they had been with the Lord. When they needed to find apostles, we see a journey of that in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, they said, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They were looking to replace Judas, who had betrayed the Lord, with an apostle, and this was the qualification. We know that God would call men out to serve in this role. He called Paul and Barnabas out in the book of Acts 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Now, wait a minute. If the qualification of an apostle is that they had seen the risen Lord, why did Paul get to be an apostle? Well, Paul tells us why he gets to be an apostle. Paul is fleshing out the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 through 8 as he preaches the gospel. And he says, then he, that's the risen Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. So Paul ministered during the same generation as the apostles, though he was not with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Then he appeared to James and, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born he appeared also to me. Paul says, I, I feel like I was born in the wrong place at the wrong time. But by God's grace, he appeared to me as the resurrected Lord. And we know this happened on Paul's salvation. Nobody persecuted the church more than Saul. But Saul became Paul and became an apostle when the risen Lord appeared to him. Now, what did the apostles do that's so important? They wrote the word of God. In fact, when the early church was collecting the sacred writings, the process is called the canonization of the Bible. The requirement for a book to be seen as inspired, one, was that it had been written by an apostle. So all the New Testament books were written by apostles. And that's why I don't have to be an apostle. You don't need an apostle. You need a pastor who preach with apostolic authority from the Word of God. Well, why is that important? It's because you do not deserve to be herded into a big, beautiful building and told how to live your life based on the opinions of another dude. You want to know the Word of God, which is why the pastor's role is to take what the apostles have already written and simply explain it and help you apply it in your life. And when he does that, well, he preaches prophetically 
over your life. Apostles, prophets, and teachers. Now, what are the other gifts? Well, today's not the day to unpack all of them. There are two views in Christianity that conflict with one another. If you look at that list again of the three offices and the four or five gifts, miracle, healing, tongues, those tend to cause controversy in the church. In a few weeks, when I walk you through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'm going to flesh out our understanding of the gift of tongues. To deny the gift of tongues would be not to read your Bible. It's in your Bible. The debate in churches is not whether or not the gift of tongues existed or exists today. The debate is what is and what is not the gift of tongues. Stay tuned. We'll sort all that out in a few weeks. But for the time being, there are two camps within Christianity. There are some who think that once the Bible was complete, those public miraculous gifts of miracles, healing tongues ceased once the apostles died. They're called cessationists. There are others who say, no, 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 all the gifts continue today. If the ceased crowd are called cessationists, I'll give you one guess on the crowd that says they continue. They're called continuationists. I deeply respect a ton of people in both camps. I will tell you that most who hold a strong high view of the preaching of God's word and have reformed good solid theology that teaches the sovereignty of God would land more in the cessationist camp. I also know that there are many people who struggle with that. I'm one of them. What I mean by that is, is that I, I would not quantify myself as a cessationist, though I can respect the position and can even defend it. I would say that I understand all the gifts to reveal themselves today with a great deal of caution to recognize there is a strong biblical evidence that the first manifestation of the gospel among a people is often accompanied with divine movement to verify the gospel. We see this on the mission field. Our missionaries embattle themselves against spiritual warfare in ways that you and I don't see every day. By the way, why do you think we don't see the spiritual warfare that we see in other dark places? I'll tell you why. The enemy does not have to engage us with demonic power. He has this country drunk on sex and recreation. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to uh, take ca people captive who are lost with demon possession when just about every home has somebody addicted to porn in it. And so what we find is that when we go into places where there is spiritual darkness and the gospel is not gone, we see these miraculous episodes of God revealing himself. My point is this. Do I believe God heals people? A woman today in this building bore witness to me out in the concourse, and this woman had a tumor in her neck, prayed and said, God, I'm not praying for you to take this away from me, but if it is your will, I would ask for you to touch my neck. She went in to have the surgery, had the IV in her arm, and was prepared, and the doctor came in and said, have you been praying? Because I can't find the tumor to operate on it. So I believe that. I believe Jesus healed her. And she and I 
right there because I'm a pastor. And my job is to keep it between the ditches in your life. I don't need Jesus to heal her to believe in Jesus. Every person who's ever been healed gets sick again and dies. Lazarus, raised from the dead. You know what happened years later? He died. Only one person has walked in the grave and walked out. Jesus. That's why he's the firstborn among the dead. You say, well, other people got resurrected in the Bible. Yeah, they died again. He has not and will not. So, so my point is this. Can God in his grace heal people? Can God display his grace through miracles? Can God give people the opportunity to be a part of a prayer meeting where we see God answer those prayers within a few days or weeks or months of praying them? Yes, it certainly happened in my life. What God does not do, he does not weaponize charismatic individuals to fill up soccer stadiums and claim healing on people they've never met. Those are always easy to spot because the ministry is about the man and not the king. And so when we begin to think about these gifts, I go back to this discussion which should rule our hearts. Whenever I see the manifestation of the Spirit, I need to ask the question, is the church being edified? Chaotic worship services with people running around and flailing about does not edify the church. But God's people believing in his power and working and trusting him edifies the church. Which is why of this second truth, our reaction should be pretty simple. If God designates the people who are to lead and God gives the abilities to each of us according to his sovereign plan, then we ought to affirm our leaders and then aspire for greater effectiveness. What do you do with verse 30 where Paul says, verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Oh, I love the Bible in context. This is so good. Can you pick your spiritual gifts? Church family answer, no. God gives you your gifts. Can you develop your gifts? Yes. Should you use your gifts? Yes. Can you lose your gifts? Well, you can certainly lose their effectiveness. I promise you, if you're my age, your biceps are smaller than when you were 20. I don't use them the way I used to use them. But the Bible does teach here in verse 31 and in other places, there is nothing wrong with you seeing gifts in other people's lives and saying, Lord, by your grace, if that's something I could develop, if that's something I could do more effectively, would you help me and let me do that for the edification of your church? Some of you teach small group, and 10 years ago you were paralyzed to teach. But you started teaching it. You started leading a discussion. I know grown men in this room who used to wouldn't pray in public because they were scared to death of how simple their language sounded compared to the preacher's prayer on Sundays. And yet now they're prayer warriors because somebody pushed them to pray, pushed them to learn to pray, pushed them to pray out loud. What are the greater gifts in verse 31? According to the context, the problem in Corinth was that there was this elevation of tongue speaking and people were measuring their spirituality by how often and frequently they spoke in tongues according to the Corinthian pagan practices. And Paul seems to be indicating that while tongues have a place in the church, and I'm going to explain that in a few weeks. If I keep saying that, we're going to have 9,000 people show up. But if tongues, but, but secondly, 
The greater gift is the clear teaching of the Word of God. In fact, in chapter 14, we're going to see this in a few weeks. He says, prophecy's better than tongues. He's not downing tongues. He's just saying the best edification of the church is the clear explanation of God's Word so that you have a clear picture of the next step of obedience in your life when you leave here. And so the point is, you and I ought to look at the gifts that edify the church and pray this prayer. Lord, when I see her function in her giftedness, when I see him function in his giftedness, would you help me have the discernment to the degree that you've gifted me to be as effective as she is? to be as servant-hearted as he is, to be the kind of woman that she is. This is a good thing. I mean, think about it. Whenever you have a bad knee, what do you want? You would like for surgery or physical therapy to get this knee to function like this knee. The comparison helps you know what you can do. This is what the Scripture teaches us about the body. So I was in Bethlehem a few days ago with the Church of the Nativity. The Church of the Nativity is the church built over the point where Christians have historically marked where Jesus was born. Uh, to the degree that we can be sure, we're within a few feet. It's a beautiful church. In fact, when you go to the Holy Lands, you don't see old rugged crosses and caves and nativity scenes. You see these big uh, Byzantine era and and churches that have been built over these commemorative spots. A lot of Roman Catholic, a lot of Greek Orthodox influence. And one of the things you do in the Church of the Nativity is you get in line and you go under the altar of the church because under the altar is a portion that was the cave that was marked as the place where Jesus was born. Jesus was not born in a barn. We know he was placed in a manger, but a manger is a trough. And often in the Middle East, animals at night were housed in crevices in the rocks or caves. They were pushed up in there. And so most people believe Jesus was born there. And history would say that we're within a few feet. So as I'm in line, there are thousands of people, hundreds in the church, thousands in line behind us, and you wait for several hours. And, and if I'm going to stand around, I'm going to talk to people. I'm just going to talk to people. And in front of me were some folks from Southeast Asia. They all, of course, had that look, darker skin, Asian facial features. And so they knew a little bit of English. And so we were, I was talking to this lady, and she seemed jovial, and she had a nice smile about her. And she said, where are you from? I said, I'm from, from America. And she said, well, I'm from Indonesia. And so I had little, little coverage. So I pulled up maps. I said, here? And she said, yeah, Indonesia. And she took me, and she, and she zoomed in, and she took me to this place, a Toba Lake. I'd never heard of it. She said, I live right on this lake. I came home and Googled it. My goodness, what a beautiful place. So she lives right on this lake in Toba, Indonesia. And so after she showed me how beautiful her place looked, I, I thought, well, I need to sort of bring something to the table. So I told her I was a very famous American. <laughs> in my own mind, I'm a big deal. We laughed. I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not famous. I, I pastor a church. I'm with some people here. And, they're talking, and so we, we got a selfie together, you know, and I don't know, maybe she bought the famous line, I don't know. But then after that, she looked at the picture of me and her, and of course, a picture with me, and it's never pleasant, but she had a nice smile, and so we were looking, and she said, we look alike. And she pointed to her nose, and I thought, well, gosh, I don't wish that on anybody, but 
We look alike. We look alike. I said, we laughed about it. And then, but then she said, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what she said. And I thought, okay, here's this woman born in Indonesia. I'm born in Alabama. And here we are in Bethlehem at the place our Lord was born. There is nothing in this world that we ought to have in common. Different ethnicity, different demographic, different skin color, different language, different culture, different gender. And here we are as his body. And when I meet people like that, it just reminds me that don't put him in a box. He did not save you to not use you powerfully in your church. He did not save you to waste your life. He is not interested in you being saved and coming in here on two wheels and just being a part. He wants to use you. Love him. Love his church. And be his 